And boy, have we got tyranny everywhere, raining down upon us like like uh, chemtrails, <laughs> all right? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Christian Israelites, truth lovers, patriots, white nationalists, etc., those who want to see the beast destroyed. Welcome to all of you. Of course, some of us still have to understand the beast and what the beast is. So I'm going to do a quick plug for my book, The Great Impersonation, 4th edition, has just come out. It's available at Money Tree Publishing. I put the link into the chat room here. And I'm going to go there real quick and play the audio blurb for the book, which is, uh, here, let me see. I guess I got to, I'll just click on the link I put in the chat room because I'm not finding it. Right away, here we go, here it is. Okay, so this is MoneyTreePublishing.com. And when you go there, it'll open up to the front page, uh, David Gehari, who's the owner of Money Tree Publishing, and also the owner of uh, the uh, what uh, Paul English's uh, new project, the uh, Speak Free Radio, and he owns that as well. So uh, you won't find a book on the front page, so you have to go uh, and click on Shop. And if you click on Shop, then the Great Impersonation will appear. And here is the uh, audio promo. To paraphrase a modern social critic, we now live in a world where doctors kill with drugs, lawyers railroad innocent people into prisons, universities suppress the free exchange of ideas, governments ignore the voters, The press creates fake news, corporations control governments, and religion serves the devil instead of God. In The Great Impersonation, Pastor Eli James will escort you down into the underworld and up into the netherworld, and a deep dive inside the underground castle of the beast that is deceiving the whole world, namely Talmudic Judaism and the fractional reserve banking system, all by properly interpreting the Holy Bible, which has clearly prophesied all of the world's history from the expulsion of Cain from the Garden of Eden up to these tumultuous end-time events, including COVID, wars, and rumors of wars, plus spiraling global debt. This book is the conspiracy book to cap off all conspiracy books. To those who say there are no conspiracies, Pastor James says, quote, Those who say there are no conspiracies are themselves the conspirators, unquote. This book will answer all of your questions as to who rules the world and how it is done. So, who rules the world? (laughs) Those of us in identity absolutely know who rules the world. Didn't Paul say, Satan is the prince of this world? So, we know who it is. It's just that the rest of the world has to catch up with us in understanding what's going on. Uh, Michael will not be here today. Yeah, but we have for next week scheduled an interview with a friend of his who is a skeptic of identity, and he is interested in coming on and having a a civilized discussion of how to properly interpret the Bible. So I don't know to what extent uh, Michael's friend knows anything about the Bible, but uh, Michael thinks this is going to be a good show. So that's what we're going to happen next week. In the meantime, since Michael is not here, 
we're not going to continue the uh, fallacy of millennialism. Well, that'll wait for another three weeks. But we have a related article that is uh, I've been using to explain to people that we are in a situation where we have to understand, we absolutely have to understand the the prophecies of the book of Revelation. Okay, yeah, thank you, Bavarian Man. That should be very interesting next week. So uh, I had to click on the link. It's a good thing I put the link in the chat room. For some reason, it disappeared off my main screen. And uh, let me see. It's taking, it's loading. <laughs> it's, it's loading. And so, realized millennialism, here it is. Okay, so let me copy this again, because it shouldn't take that long to load up. But computers are funny. As I like to say, computers are like women. You can't live with them, you can't live without them. So, that's our situation, folks. So, here we go. This is it uh, once again. <laughs> it says, this site can't be reached. Okay. Well, here, I'm going to put the link back in the chat room. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully it will come up for you guys. It's, for some reason, it won't open up from the chat room link. But anyway, so this is a very much uh, interesting article uh, talking about millennialism in general, the various forms of millennialism, and how the Judeo-Christian world is simply you know, all confused about it. There's so many different versions of millennialism. You could write a book just about that, all right? But this is kind of a, a short summary, not a synopsis of the different versions and uh, what we're up against here. All right, so this is realized millennialism, and I see he misspelled millennialism. It's it's double L and double N. <laughs> he only has a single N by William Kilgore, and he says, the interpretation of the apocalyptic prophecies contained in Scripture hold a special place of fascination for many modern believers. Probably most modern believers across the denominational spectrum would be classified as premillennialists along dispensational lines, either classic dispensationalism or today's progressive variety. And uh, let me just quickly state that dispensationalism is the belief that the Jews are the people of the Bible of the Old Testament Israel. But since the Jews rejected Christ, the church takes the place of the Jews in this millennial dispensation or the age of grace, as they also call it, until the judgment day when everything will be resolved and the Jews will suddenly become Christians and everything's all good, okay? I can assure you the Bible teaches nothing of the kind. But that's dispensationalism. Like most evangelicals, I was taught this particular view early in my Christian growth. As should be obvious from the title of this article, I no longer adhere to the premillennial scheme of interpretation and much less dispensationalism. Hear, hear. As the book of Daniel says, only the wise shall understand. And the title states, this is written as a description of my view. 
I wish no ill will toward those holding other eschatological positions. Eschatology is the analysis of scriptural prophecies of the second coming. It is my personal opinion that perhaps more than any other area of doctrine, eschatological views are open to debate. They sure are. Primarily because when the King James Version was written, none of these people had any idea uh, who Israel is. <laughs> so uh, there's, uh, and that's true, still true today for most denominations. They have no idea that the Jews are not Israelites. Therefore, when you make that assumption and trying to diagnose prophecy, you'll be wrong every time. Therefore, he continues, it is not my intention to defend my position against any other positions, though some of this will no doubt be inevitable. My purpose here is to present the reader with the biblical reasons why I hold the position that I do, and to show where I'm coming from as a, a, an amillennialist, which means he's a non-millennialist, that the, the millennium has nothing to do with the judgment day which is actually kind of my position as well, because as you, if you caught the first two episodes that Michael and I did on this subject, we consider the millenniums to have already happened, and it was the period between the, uh, not abandonment, but the prohibition against usury in the Holy Roman Empire by Charlemagne in the year 800 AD, and that lasted for a thousand years until Napoleon broke the uh, Holy Roman Empire and allowed the Jews to become big shot moneylenders again. So that's what that was all about. And so that happened in 1815 at the Battle of Waterloo. That's when the Rothschilds became lords and masters of international finance and lords and masters of planet Earth, taking over from Jacob the uh, the right to rule planet Earth from Jacob and giving it to Esau, as prophesied by Isaac to his son Esau in, I think, Genesis chapter 26 to 27 and 28. So, but none of the, none of the theologians ever referenced that prophecy that Isaac made to Esau. That's like a non-entity. It just goes to show how little uh, theology actually considers Scripture. They they just, you know, let's put it this way. There's a lot of traditions floating around, and the tradition gets passed on from one teacher to another, and nobody ever questions it, no matter how wrong it is, right? So we in identity uh, take Scripture from its very start, from Genesis 3, 14, and 15, the prophecy of the bad blood, the animosity, the hatred, the antipathy between the bloodline of Cain and the bloodline of Adam and Eve through Seth. There's no other denomination other than identity that even talks about this. So we can see that once we take a fresh look at Scripture, and find out what it's really talking about, then you can begin to understand. Then you can begin to understand. So, yeah, there's something wrong with the links, but, uh, yeah, hopefully those will work for you. Okay, uh, it's it came up 
for Brother Eber. Okay, very good. All right, so let's get back to this article and what this A millennialist has to say, which is, well, let's see, where did I leave off? Okay, okay, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so I think, yeah, my purpose here is to present the reader with the biblical reasons why I hold this position that I do, which is amillennialism, and to show where I am coming from as an amillennialist. And I would have to say, unless you know the actual history of the world and the prophecies that have been fulfilled by Scripture, unless you have done a detailed study of that as well, you know, you're just uh, spitting in the wind, <laughs> and, and, and your spittle will blow right back in your face, as has been happening to the white race ever since we gave the Jews Palestine. Anyway, this being stated, and we did give it to them. It was the British who took possession of Palestine after World War One, and then handed it over to the Jews 40 years later. Why did they do that? Because the Jews were using terrorist tactics against the Palestinians and against the British mandate. They were executing British officers. Menachem Begin was a cutthroat. He cut the throats of two British officers who were, you know, minding their own business. They, they executed this terrorism against the British mandate. To get, to get the British to leave, and that's what happened. So it was handed over to them by us because we are the rightful possessors of that land, not the Jews. But I digress. So anyway, he says, this being stated, many statements in this article will question points of dispensationalism specifically simply because it is the most widely held position today. One final disclaimer not every detail of my viewpoint would necessarily be held up by every individual amillennialist. For instance, there is some disagreement among amillennialists concerning what the first resurrection of Revelation 20 is and also what part is played, if any, in eschatological events by natural Israel, true Israel, not the Jews, folks. I'm sure he does not know that. However, the general framework is set forth here, I believe, is faithful representation of what most who call themselves amillennialists believe regarding end-time prophecy. In any case, an amillennial uh, reading list is provided at the end of the article. It has not been my purpose here to author yet another book on eschatology. Well, if you're talking about millennialism, you pretty much have to author a book on eschatology. Therefore, I have not cited many of the scripture passages referenced herein. I would urge all of my readers to be responsible students and check these passages for themselves. So get out your Bible and let us begin. All right, you got your Bibles out, class? I have my e-sword ready. So, again, we're you know, I have to mention this because it is so often confronted, especially by those of us in identity who have a different point of view on virtually every passage of the Bible from the Judeo-Christian world. Those who preach love, 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 and all you have to do is believe in Jesus and you're saved. The Bible teaches no such thing. But these Judeo-Christian traditions rule 
the evangelical world today. They absolutely rule the evangelical world. An overview. It will be helpful to first give a brief overview of the various eschatological positions held by believers throughout history. Now, okay, who are the believers? You know, the uh, Judeo-Christians have tried to convert all these non-Israelites and all these non-Aryans. It's a complete waste of time because even Jesus has said, go not unto the, go not unto even the, uh, those in Palestine, in, uh, in the northern parts of Palestine, but go rather to the lost, sorry, excuse me, <clears throat> rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't worry about it. To, I, my message is only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We don't have to worry about converting any other people. It's hard enough to convert the, the Israelites that exist, let alone the other races. That's a complete waste of time as all of uh, you know, missionary work in Africa and Asia has proven. It's a complete waste of time. It's hard enough to convert our own people. So, so go not into the territory of the vacated by the ten northern tribes. Just don't worry about it. Don't go there. And then he also says, if if you go to a house and they reject your message, they don't want to hear it. Just turn around, leave, shake the dust off your feet, and go to the next house. He's talking about Israelite houses. All right. If they're not ready to hear the word, don't waste a ton of time trying to convert them to something that they're dead set against. Typically. The, the non-identity Israelites of the world who are pseudo-Christians, namely Judeo-Christians, they don't want to hear our message, at least not yet, although that is changing because people are getting very fearful of what's going on in the world with all the sudden deaths, right, occurring. By the way, that Damar, whatever his name is, the uh, player for the Buffalo Bills who had a seizure, a heart attack on the field, he has not been heard of or from since. Okay? They keep on giving updates, saying, oh, he's doing fine, and they show his picture on the net, but it's not, you know, just a one-second or two-second clip. But there are no interviews, no statements by that guy. Since, right? They're trying to pretend he isn't dead or still gravely ill, okay? Because he obviously got the shot and had a tar- heart attack, you know, one of those, uh, the clot shot, as we call it now, because it creates so many blood clots in your body that you, uh, you, know, you, you have to have an, uh, an amazing level of cover-ups to, to avoid putting him on the, on the screen and doing a live interview. It's not going to happen. Because he is not well. He's either dead or not well. There's no doubt about that. Okay, so let's continue. I mean, people are getting scared. And, of course, the whole COVID scenario is all about fear. Here, let me jab you. It'll save your life. Okay, but I don't, I'm not so sure. And then a person falls over dead. Like Tiffany. Right? Like Tiffany did. She took the shot on live television and passed out a few minutes later 
died a couple days later and has never been heard, heard from again. They just cover this up. See, we have short memories. That's what the Jews rely on, the short memories of white people and other people as well. Because why? Well, because we're so focused on making ends meet and living hand to mouth, check to check. Uh, what is it? Uh, social security payment to social security payment. We're all hovering on the razor's edge of poverty and starvation. And the international Jew knows it, right? The fractional reserve banking system. You will never hear these Judeo-Christians talk about the fractional reserve banking system ever, nor do the economists, except for very, very few. There are some economists who do you know, videos on YouTube and other platforms that do talk about the money lenders and how evil they really are. But uh, the ones who should be talking about that are the Christians, and they're not. They're simply not talking about it. Okay, so what does he say? It will be helpful to first give a brief overview of the various eschatological positions held by believers throughout history. For the reader's information, the quote-unquote millennium, oh, he spells it right in the body of the text, refers to the thousand years mentioned in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 7. Premillennialism is the teaching that Christ will return before the millennium, interpreted literally as a 1,000-year personal reign of Christ on earth. This reign is set up at the second coming, but precedes both the final judgment and the eternal state. Historically, premillennialism has not taught the various distinctives of dispensationalism, discussed next. Therefore, this view, actually the original premillennial position, is today called historic premillennialism and is held only by a minority. Yeah, and uh, it really doesn't make any sense for, because as we have been discussing in the first two episodes, for the beast and false prophet to be cast into the lake of fire at the end of chapter 19, and to, you know, be burnt up, never to return again, that uh, the dragon would come later, and he would have to revive, the dragon would have to revive these two entities, in order to have another reign after the so-called millennium of peace, right? That just doesn't work, folks. And he's saying, yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> All right. He calls this position historic premillennialism. He continues, dispensational premillennialism is the predominant view among modern evangelicals. This position was set forth systematically by J.N. Darby, the usual suspects being enunciated here, and the early Plymouth Brethren. Maybe they did. Well, they they were actually Calvinists, and the uh, the the Bible they used was not the King James, but uh, the Bible coming from Geneva, Switzerland. The Geneva Bible is the Bible they used. Anyway. This reign, uh, sorry, popularized by, oh, and also by the Schofield Reference Bible. Boo! We know that the Schofield Reference Bible is a Rothschild product, Samuel Untermeyer being uh, 
C.I. Schofield's handler. Okay, it's a Jewish product from start to finish. So why are we following Jewish teaching instead of Christian teaching? And further promoted in recent times by such diverse sources as the Ryrie Study Bible, Dallas Theological Seminary, the Dake Study Bible, and here's some more usual suspects, Hal Lindsey, Dave Hunt, Tim LaHaye, Jack Van Impe, etc. All of the televangelists who are all promoters of the Israeli state and Judaism. Oh, they don't, they don't want to say they're promoters of Judaism because they call themselves Christians. But they all teach that the Jews are God's chosen people. And we have to support the Israeli state if we want to be saved. Okay? That's that's what you have to believe. You have to support the Israeli state if you want to be saved, dear Christian. What a crock. What an absolute crock. All right, let's continue. So, yeah, televangelists. The world, the Christian world, has been ruled by televangelism since the advent of color television. <laughs> Thank you, Disney. You know, because uh, this television and Christianity uh, got married in the late 50s, and that marriage was performed by the perfidious Jew. Continuing, a simplified statement of its unique teachings is as follows. There are two distinct peoples of God. Natural Israel, which he assumed, he thinks is the Jews, and the church. Okay, yeah, that is basic dispensationalism. And dispen insanity. (laughs) The seven distinct plans slash ages, dispensations, in which God deals with each. This dispensation, the sixth from the Pentecost to the rapture, is the church age. A parenthesis unforeseen by the Old Testament prophets. Yeah, I agree. The the Old Testament prophets never prophesied that the so-called church, by which the Judeo-Christians mean anybody who calls itself a Christian, will go to heaven by proclaiming to believe in Jesus Christ. That's essentially all you have to do to get into the kingdom, according to them, right? But of course, we know in identity that the New Testament is delivered to exactly the same people as the Old Testament, namely flesh and blood Israel, as Paul clearly teaches and all of the other apostles teach in the New Testament. There is no shift from true Israel, flesh and blood Israel, to some universalist church. The Bible teaches no such thing. All right. So, let's continue. But this is what the churches teach because thanks to televangelists who have been pumping out this propaganda since you know, since televangelism began. So, basically from the 1960s on. All right? And, and of course, the creation of the Israeli state by the United Nations, another Rothschild enterprise, 
So here we are dealing with Rothschild teaching as if it were Christian teaching. This is what the average Christian simply does not understand. Okay, So we have natural Israel and the church and the seven plans or ages that is taught by these uh, evangelicals. Okay. And it's generally taught that there will be a seven-year tribulation based on various Bible passages. God will then resume his dealings with natural Israel. No, he has never stopped dealing with us. Unfortunately, (laughs) he chastises us constantly. And we are dealing with all kinds of issues in these end times, COVID just being one of them. Uh, the war in Ukraine threatening to erupt into World War III as many countries now are going to uh, are providing Ukraine with tanks. Another staged war in which white people lose their lives while the Jews profit. That is essentially what's happening over there, folks. I can't, I can't tell you how ridiculous all this is. It's absolutely ridiculous. Sorry, my my sweater is rubbing against my headset here, causing noise. I hope that's not distracting. Anyway, so folks, this is really incredible nonsense that we're being pumped with every day from mass media, from the churches, from the Jews. Oh, yeah, and the third temple nonsense. If we have time, we'll get into the third temple nonsense today. But anyway, because that has not been prophesied at all in Scripture. In fact, before we close, Yahshua himself put a curse upon the city of Jerusalem unless and until the people who are living there admit that he is the Messiah. That is not going to happen, folks. That will never happen. The Jews will never admit that Jesus is the Messiah. All right. So, and God will then resume his dealings with natural Israel. He's never, he's never ceased dealing with natural Israel because we are natural Israel. The Jews are not. Fulfilling all the OT, OT promises, restoring their temple, etc., etc. Okay. Finally, Christ returns and sets up a literal 1,000-year kingdom before the eternal state as with historic premillennials. Now, if the beast and the false prophet have been cast into the lake of fire in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, are they going to be reincarnated after the thousand years so that Satan can use them as his agents on the ground to deceive the nations yet again? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, the, uh, the, I guess he calls himself an amillennialist, amillennialist, but we believe in, most of us in Christian identity, there's still differences of opinion on this, that this millennium has already happened. It's a reference to the thousand years during which the Jews were prevented from lending money to nations. They were still able to do small-time money lending and foreclosing, and that's why all of these nations threw the Jews out for that period of time 
since Charlemagne's edict in 800 AD, that was Christmas Eve, 800 AD, the Jews were prevented from lending money to nations. But on the sly, they were lending money to, you know, a duke here, a fife there, etc., etc., and to little towns who got under their spell, and they loaned money to poor people in small-town Europe and impoverished them by collecting the interest on that debt, right? (laughs) Because if you lend $1,000 to a, a bunch of people who have no money at all, or very little money, and then they buy stuff and get even more in debt. And then when the time comes that they paid off their debt, the principal on the debt, then the time comes where you have to pay the interest on the debt. So where does that money come from? Well, these peasants didn't have the interest money. So they had to beg, borrow, and steal from their friends and neighbors and you know, to pay off the debt. Well, this created havoc in whatever town they were living at. And all they knew was that before the Jewish moneylender came to town, they were living peaceably among themselves. After the Jewish moneylender came to town, there was nothing but chaos and poverty, etc. That's all the peasants knew. But they knew that was the Jewish moneylender was the cause of their disruption. Okay? our people still have not learned this lesson because they don't talk about economics. The churches don't. Not a word about economics. Anyway, let's continue. It should be noted here that as this teaching has enjoyed popularity, factions have evolved which set forth mid-trib rapture (laughs) called pre-wrath. Well, I guess that would include me. Pre-wrath, right? Because... The, the tribulation period was actually a, a period of uh, you know, judgment in itself because it, it clearly says to me that the, those who earned their crowns, the martyrs, in that thousand-year period were to be the first resurrection. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 20. So, and they're up there with Yahshua already. Among others, uh, there's a, you know, obviously the Israelites who were the part of the first fruits, the wave sheaf offering in 33 AD, who ascended. You know, those are the ones who were redeemed by Yahshua at the cross and earned their right to, into the kingdom with him. So at, right after he ascended, they ascended along with him. Okay, That is the first fruits. And that occurred... Uh, certainly at Pentecost, 33 AD, okay? So they were granted the right to uh, get into the kingdom then. The rest of us have to wait until the judgment day. Although some of us will not die, we will be tr- we will simply stay here on earth because the book of Revelation clearly says that New Jerusalem will come down here to planet earth with 12 tribes, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes, making 144,000. And that there are 12 gates in the New Jerusalem, and that the, uh, the Israelites will rule with Yahshua from that location here on earth forever and ever. Okay? 
So the saints will return with Christ to make war against the beasts at the judgment day. And boy, I can't wait. (laughs) I cannot wait for that day. But don't worry, folks. It's coming sooner. Every day, every tick of the clock means it's coming, right? And I can't wait for that day. And I have a scenario uh, based on uh, the the proper interpretation of the feast days as to when that will be because the 70th Jubilee from the date that uh, Joshua and the Israelites invaded Canaan land which was 1406 B.C., that 70th Jubilee, and 70 is the number of judgment, is coming up in the year 2025. The Feast of Atonement 2025 will be the 70th Jubilee, folks. So get ready. That will be your last chance to... Repent of your sins, that is to make your robes clean and white, before the judgment day. All right? So, uh, I think that uh, this this tribulation is, well, it's already started. The tribulation started with the first jab, right? Uh, The jab is simply the weapon of choice of the beast, the Antichrist, to attack our DNA. And there's a, a video floating around that talks about the day that Queen Elizabeth uh, did a ceremony on the grounds of her palace, and it's about DNA. You know, the father gives uh, 72,000, what do you call it, Uh, the, the, let's call it the ladder of the DNA. You have the the, the spiral shape, and then the, the ladders, the rungs between those spiral lines are 72,000 strands of DNA. Strands, that's the word I'm looking for. 72,000 strands of DNA from the father, 72,000 strands of DNA from the mother. However, well, that's 144,000. However, the mRNA shot is designed to create a third strand of DNA, which will result in 216 thousand strands of DNA. And that's the ceremony that Queen Elizabeth II did just before she died. Very interesting. And there's a video of that, and uh, I will share that. I will put that in the link uh, after today's show. All right. So, given that, and then guess what? The Bible says that the number of the beast is 600, threescore, and six. That's 600 times 60 times 6. If you multiply those three numbers together, you get 216,000. Is this a prophecy of the third strand of DNA created by Bill Gates himself? I think so, folks. I really think so. Let's continue. Premillennialism is the teaching that Christ will return before the millennium interpreted literally as a thousand-year personal reign. And so, when is this going to happen? Well, they think it's going to happen in Revelation 20, just before the Judgment Day, or just before the Second Coming Day. Second coming day. This reign is set up at the Second Coming, but precedes both the Final Judgment 
and the eternal state. Historically, premillennialism has taught the various distinctives of dispensationalism discussed next. So let's go there. Dispensationalism, dispensational premillennialism, how many 16-letter words can he put together, is the predominant view among modern evangelicals. And, of course, we named the, the usual suspects in that teaching. It should be noted here that as this teaching has enjoyed popularity, factions have evolved which set forth a mid-trib rapture called pre-wrath and also a post-trib rapture. Now, that's getting too complicated. That's getting way too complicated. Post-millennialism is the idea that Christ will return after the millennium. Okay, so that is my view. Christ will return after the millennium, and the millennium is defined as that thousand-year period during which the Jews were forbidden to lend money to nations. In this view, the millennium is interpreted literally as an earthly reign. Yeah, well, that's what the Bible says. However, this reign is ushered in as the church subdues the world. Well, no, it's after the Battle of Armageddon, after the Judgment Day. Thus, the world becomes more and more Christianized. Well, (laughs) it hasn't happened yet, right? We are still a very, very small minority. No, those who gradually understand that the Jews are not Israel and that the second coming is going to be the destruction of the Jews and those who follow the Jews, they become Christians. So that hasn't happened yet because Judeo-Christianity still reigns. What I see is more and more secular people turn against the Jews and will become more open to Christian identity. That's how I see it. But let's continue. And that this will bring about a golden age in which Christ exercises dominion through the church. No, not through the church. Through the Israelites. Then the second coming takes place. Yeah, that's... uh, If it hasn't happened yet, it ain't going to happen anytime soon, right? I still think it's only about the remnant. Only a remnant will survive throughout history. Every time Israel has been chastised by Yahweh, only a remnant has survived. This view is still prominent in many Reformed circles, promoted by teachers like R.J. Rush Dooney, Gary DeMar, Gary North... David Chilton, etc. It also enjoyed a brief revival among many charismatic groups under the modified form of dominion or kingdom now theology. However, this charismatic trend seems to have waned considerably as teachers like Hal Lindsey have become popular again. Yeah, so there's a wavering because the fact is that none of these people know what the Bible's all about, right? So there's guesswork. It's pure guesswork on the part of all these various schools of millennialism, okay? Yeah, and uh, there is so much nonsense being taught in the name of the Bible. It's just, uh, (laughs) Brother Abrams says, Jesus is not like Bill Murray on Groundhog Day. He is a coming back once, right? There will only be one second coming as there was only one first advent, Okay, so don't use up your freeze-dried few just yet, right? 
There's so much disinfo and so much disagreement. It's absolutely amazing. Right. Okay. So, next heading here. The interpretation of, I won't even go into preterism. I won't even go there. The interpretation of Bible prophecy. The popularity of dispensational premillennialism is largely due to the idea that to interpret the Bible, quote-unquote, literally, must always mean we interpret it naturally. Well, if the Jews are natural Israel, have they showed any sign at all of converting to Christianity? Aren't the Jews totally involved in promoting the the so-called third temple within which they wish to start animal sacrifices all over again? That's utterly anti-Christian. But the uh, Judeo-Christians tend to overlook facts like that. I must reject this notion, he says. The inspired scriptures contain various forms of literature that must be interpreted appropriately. That is, the way in which God meant them to be interpreted. Yeah, that is correct. Because the book of Revelation is all symbolism. It's all symbolism. There's hardly a literal word in the book of Revelation. That that means you have to understand the Old Testament as well as the New Testament because a lot of the symbolism, like the lampstand and the wine and the water and all of those things, they come from the Old Testament. Not not to mention the Israel people also come from the Old Testament and are not the Jews. And there was no such thing as Judaism in the Old Testament. Judaism is a modern religion. There is poetic language, anthropomorphisms, meaning projecting human ideas upon Yahweh God, parables, symbols, etc. Furthermore, Such an approach tends toward an unbiblical dualism, giving the material priority over the spiritual. Well, it's both. If you understand who natural Israel is and the fact that natural Israel will be promoted, those of us who have properly repented of our sins, that natural Israel would be promoted into the kingdom as the occupants of the new Jerusalem, that is the seat of government, of the universe from that moment forward, it's both. It's both natural and spiritual. This is backwards thinking, he says. If anything, it is the spiritual that is more real. And he quotes 1 Corinthians 15.46 and Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 24. But it's really both. You have to, unless you know who Israel is, you cannot interpret this book of Revelation. The apocalyptic literature contained in Scripture is no exception. The inspired prophecies of both Old and New Testaments are written in signs and symbols. Consider the following. Quote, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. That is Hosea 12.10. So this section here, this, this author is making a lot of sense. He still doesn't know who Israel really is, but he's making a lot of sense. It's all figurative language about a natural people, namely flesh and blood Israel. 
The prophets spoke in parables. Psalm 78.2, Ezekiel 17.2, and used dark speech. Numbers 12.6-8. Jesus himself, the prophet, like Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15 and 18-19. See John 1.45, Acts 3.22. Did the same. Matthew 13, oh man, the parable of the wheat and the tares, <laughs> Mark 4, Luke 8 and 10. The revelation to John is no different. It's all symbolism. But if you know who's who and who's Jew and who's what and who you are and whose you are, you have a much better chance to interpret the revelation properly. The book of Revelation is a series of visions given to John to signify the events of the end time. Revelation 1.1. But that end time vision began in his day with the martyrs of Christendom. So it's actually a a continuous prophecy covering 2,000 years from the day that John wrote the first word of it until the judgment day. But it also has flashbacks into the Old Testament, numerous flashbacks into the Old Testament, especially the seven beasts, four of which are delineated by Daniel in the book of Daniel that come to play in the book of Revelation. And, of course, the kingdom prophesied by Daniel, which cannot be broken, which will live forever, last forever. And that kingdom was begun at the first advent. The 2,000 years between the two advents is a trial for us to harden our, our bodies and minds against all the evil in this world so that we can fight against it properly and not be deceived by it. That's the challenge. It's still a period of great challenge. Those of us who repent properly will receive the grace. It's not automatic grace. Because even Paul says, if the law has been done away with, wherewith shall the judgment be be done? Right? You have to have a law for which judgment to occur. Continuing. The book of Revelation is a series of visions about the end times events, Revelation 1.1. It is a summary of all that the prophets have foretold. Well, I wouldn't say all, but it it takes into consideration much of that prophecy. John bears record of the word of God. There is nothing new here. Revelation is the clarified summation and corresponds to the Old Testament prophets. Very intelligent words here. Further, The focal point of all prophecy is Jesus Christ himself. That is correct. That's eschatology, folks. The OT is fulfilled in the new, Matthew 13, 17. There are too many here to recite. That is the person of Jesus Christ. It is his testimony that is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19, 10. Finally, When we look at how Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled as recorded in the New Testament, the literalist hermeneutic just does not stand up. Almost all OT prophecies were given as pertaining to our natural realm. 
That is correct. As the things that will happen to us in the real world. But are these prophecies fulfilled in the natural? Well, they have been. He says certainly not. All of these prophecies will pertain to actual historical events prophesied. So yes, they will be fulfilled in the natural world. However, the language is figurative and spiritual. Some are fulfilled in the natural realm, just as given in Genesis 15, 13 through 16. I think that's that's the prophecy given to Abraham that Israel will take over the promised land and evict the Canaanites. And there's there's just so many here, I, I can't even re- recite them all, so I'll make sure to include the link in the summary of this uh, audio when it's posted up on Eurofolk Radio. Just way too many here. I would strongly urge the reader to look at each prophecy, i.e. fulfillment, that I have listed. None of them were fulfilled in a strict literal sense. That's because he thinks the Jews are Israel. Furthermore, these equal, but they're these equal but a small percentage of the total number. Okay. The combination of equal but <laughs> is very unusual. Okay. All right. The book of Revelation uses symbols from the OT in great abundance. To interpret many of these symbols literally leads to ridiculous and fanciful interpretations. Souls under the altar, hell following death, the woman riding the beast. Well, but if you know who that woman is, the great whore of Revelation is the fractional reserve banking system. (laughs) That's a literal fulfillment of this figurative statement. This is further proven by the fact that some of the symbols are actually interpreted in the text itself and so identified as such as the seven lamps being the seven spirits or seven angels. Thus, the biblical evidence suggests that we look for a spiritual interpretation of both the Old Testament prophets and Revelation, allowing the plain teaching for the rest of Scripture to guide us. This will become an even more obvious in relation to the millennium as we consider the nature of the kingdom of God. Okay. For the most part, this author is making true statements, but because he does not know who true Israel is, he, he does not see the literal or natural fulfillment of these prophecies. Because none of these prophecies regarding Israel have been filled by the Jews. None of them. So now he talks about a spiritual kingdom. The precise nature of the kingdom of God is of great importance here. It is a natural kingdom. Yes. Oh, sorry, it's a question. Is it a natural kingdom or is it a spiritual kingdom? Well, it's both. It's going to be both physical and spiritual or etheric is the word I prefer because it will be both in, in many dimensions. My My Father's kingdom has many mansions. There's many levels of existence. And one is the physical world, and the other is the kingdom. Which right now, well, actually the kingdom is in us, so it already exists in us. 
but it doesn't exist in this world for non-Israelites and even Israelites who don't believe that we are supposed to reign with him when the kingdom comes and create order on this planet. That's what the kingdom is all about. So it's both natural and spiritual, to use his terminology. So he says, the pre-millennial scheme proposes a natural kingdom which precedes the eternal state. Okay, and it's already here because it exists in us. These are not different kingdoms, but synonyms for the same reality despite claims made by some dispensationalists. So I think he and I agree on this. A comparison of the synoptic gospels reveals quite clearly that whether referred to as of heaven or as of God, one kingdom is in view, namely the kingdom of Christ, Ephesians 5.5. That is correct. Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great statue in Daniel 2. The statue represents his own kingdom and some that would follow. Then in verse 44 we read, quote, And in the days of these kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It will only be left for Israel. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That's self-explanatory, folks. No argument at all. However, the churches, assuming that the Jews are Israel, are still waiting for them to convert. They're still waiting for the Jews to convert. Yeah, there's not too many happy people today, (laughs) right? Because we're all being persecuted. We're being persecuted by the whore that rides the seven beasts. It's a horrible situation. Plus, World War III has already started, which very few people understand that either. So, folks, it's time to convert to identity. We're the only people, ever since the days of Henry Ford and his author, you know, his editor, William Cameron, who figured the Jews out. They figured out the Jews are not the Israelites of the Bible. They're pretenders. And the Christian identity movement in America has flowered here in America ever since. It's still like a, uh, what's the term? A budding flower, right? Sprouts. (laughs) We got a sprout here and a sprout there, dotted all over the country. And we have a few sprouts in Europe and Australia, some really good sprouts in Australia, right? Hopeofisrael.org is a fantastic website. And uh, there are are sprouts all over the planet's. But they're trying to kill those sprouts with the jab, trying to destroy the DNA of those sprouts as we speak. So let's continue. So, that prophecy stands. And we are here building the kingdom. The kingdom is in us. It has already started. It started at the first advent. And guess what? The Jews have been trying to kill us ever since that this description does not square with the dispensationalist kingdom should be obvious. The kingdom spoken of by Daniel is set up before the second coming of Christ in the days of these kings. Very good. Wow. A Judeo-Christian who actually makes a correct observation of prophecy. 
That is, during his first coming. Yeah, all right, thank you. Furthermore, this kingdom will plainly last far longer than a mere thousand years. So what gives? Psalm 110 verses 1 through 2 is the foundational passage for the New Testament picture of the kingdom. The Messiah sits at God's right hand. This was fulfilled in Christ's resurrection, exaltation, and ascension. Acts 2, 29-36 This is to be until I, the Father, make thine enemies thy footstool, unquote. This is Christ's present reign in us. He's up in the kingdom in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Because Lucifer, who once sat at the left hand of the Father, has been kicked out of heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And I think somebody's going to have to take Lucifer's place on the left hand, on the left side. Oh, oh. Is the right side the strand of DNA? And the left side are restored other strand of DNA? Well, they're trying to destroy our DNA, are they not? There might be a reference of oh, Jacob's ladder, the rungs of DNA, <laughs> right? Talk about figurative language. Just speculating here, folks. It's fun to speculate. Anyway, so let's continue. This is true because Christ's kingdoms is a spiritual reality, he says. All right. Yeah, Christ's reign is described as being in the midst of his enemies, but it's also real, natural, because it exists in us, in the flesh, right here on earth, in those sprouts I was just talking about. The New Testament expressly teaches that this kingdom is not, an, well, it doesn't say that, but a spiritual one. No, it's going to be a literal kingdom for Israel. The prophecies that Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, will live on into eternity, that's not a spiritual prophecy. That is a literal prophecy, and we're still here. Please read the following key passages. He says, Luke 17, 20, 21, John 3, 3, 5, 7, etc. Again, a whole slew of prophecies he's uh, repeating here. In summary, these passages teach, teach that the kingdom, okay, he's got a bullet point list here that I will read through. And before moving on to the millennium, because there is, I want to recite the prophecy of Matthew chapter 23 before going any further, because this is going to put the total kibosh on any idea that a third third temple will be built and that, uh, that there needs to be, and there needs to be more animal sacrifices to happen before the Jews can be converted, right? If anything, that's proof that the Jews can't be converted. So, bullet point number one. That the kingdom 
All right, uh, the above passages. So I might have to reference some of those passages to see whether he's correct about them. But I need to do Matthew chapter 23, the very last uh, sentence of that chapter before coming back to these. So number one. So supposedly that the kingdom does not come with observation, literally with outward show. Oh, okay, well, he may have been referring to the observation of animal sacrifices, right? Or ritual behavior. No, it comes from knowledge. My kingdom or my people are destroyed by lack of knowledge. Okay. But he may be correct and uh, because the people looking aren't, aren't following the correct signs, right? And also, you know, when Yahweh pleases, he will enlighten us. So there may yet be a mass conversion of true Israelites to Christian identity before the end. I'm sure hoping so. I've been praying for that. Number two, that it is within believers. That is absolutely correct. Number three, well, not believers, it's within Israel. Three, cannot be entered nor even seen apart from a spiritual rebirth. You have to be born from above and converted, not born again. That's a false translation of that passage. You must be born from with water and spirit. Okay, water being the natural, spirit being the supernatural. Okay. Yeah, mother's womb. Four is not of this world, not of this current age. Right, we're still living living in a very evil age. Five has nothing to do with substances like food and drink, but rather is manifested in the changed character of individual. Yeah, we must be converted, individual Christians, individual Israelites. We are the light of the world, and we're supposed to set the example for them to follow. As the uh, Canaanite woman who confronted Christ and asked him for uh, a miracle, he said, I cannot give you the children's bread, lady. I cannot do that. But I can give you a blessing. I will heal your daughter. So go away. (laughs) Number six that the kingdom is not simply a message, but a demonstration of spiritual power. Yeah, when he comes, he's going to kick butt. Number seven, that the kingdom, the, the, uh, yes, the kingdom, is an incorruptible kingdom that cannot be inherited by corruption, our mere flesh and blood, that's correct. And that's why it cannot be inhabited by Jews. <laughs> there will be no Jews, Edomites, Ashkenazi or or Sephardic Jews, they there will be none of those in the kingdom, folks. Eight is the present reality where we are translated when we are delivered from the powers of darkness. Some of us will be translated. Some of us will not have to die before getting into the kingdom. We will just in what how does Paul put it? In the blink of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye will be converted from flesh and blood into our glory bodies. Praise Yahweh for that day. Number nine is where God has called us in saving us. 
Do you hear him calling? <laughs> knock, knock, knock. Behold, I knock. Are you going to open the door for me? Ten is not earthly, but heavenly. Well, everything after the judgment day will be heavenly because everything will be, there will be a new heavens and a new earth and the corrupt physical world will be changed dramatically. Okay? Eleven cannot be moved, i.e. is of a spiritual nature or I would say a permanent nature. Twelve is everlasting even in its final manifestation. Amen to that. Okay? So this Judeo-Christian author is making numerous good points, way better than any other Judeo-Christian, natural Judeo-Christian I have ever come across. And he is right on so many points. But the fact that he does not know who Israel is uh, makes him assume that a lot of these fulfillments are spiritual rather than literal. Give me a second. I have to take a swig of my coffee here. And he concludes this section by saying, In my estimation, then, the scriptures are quite clear as to the precise nature of the kingdom. Survey the popular prophecy teachings of our day. All manner of makeshift explanations. That is correct makeshift explanations are put forth to offset this clear fact. But the fact remains the kingdom of God and the king of Christ is a present spiritual reality that is being extended in this age. This is the kingdom that is the focus of the faith of Abraham. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. Very good. Very good. So there are a lot of points where he agrees with Christian identity doctrine. And now I'm going to switch. I may come back to some of these quotations that he says accentuate these, uh, well, how many points was it? I have to scroll back up to see. 12 points. And so now let us go to Matthew chapter 23. Because there are certain utterances in Matthew chapter 23 that pertain to Jerusalem, whether physical Jerusalem or spiritual Jerusalem. Okay. Let's go to Matthew 23, 30. He's talking of the Pharisees. Whoa, uh, let me back up to 29, because that begins the thought. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, just like every president of the United States has done. He forces us into wars that are totally unnecessary. And then after the graves have been dug and marked with a cross, he makes a ceremony of, oh, I honor your... No, you're the ones who are responsible for their deaths. Truman. The Bushes. FDR. LBJ. All of them have forced us into wars 
at the behest of the perfidious Jew. So that's a literal fulfillment. It's happening today. Verse 30. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Sure. Verse 31. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. You scribes and Pharisees, you. You perfidious ones, you descendants of Cain. Verse 32. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Okay, they're just going to continue doing what Cain did. Verse 33, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Why don't the churches quote these passages? Are they afraid to quote these passages? Are they afraid to offend their lords and masters, the perfidious Jews? By the way, those same words were uttered by John, John the Baptist, when he first accounted the Sadducees and Pharisees. He said, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Verse 34. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues, and shall persecute them from city to city which is still happening today. Any Christian pastor who criticizes the Jews or exposes them will be persecuted by them. Matthew uh, 23-35 That upon you, right? Now, this must be taken literally. He's speaking directly. This is not a prophecy. Well, it's it's prophetic in the sense that the judgment day will be their demise, anyway, that upon you, scribes and Pharisees, you generation of vipers, may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. This is not spiritual blood, folks. This is real blood. From the blood of righteous Abel, who was a literal, natural man, Adamite, Unto the blood of Zacharias, another natural Adamite, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. So he's accusing these scribes and Pharisees of the deaths of all the prophets from Abel down to Zechariah, and in the previous verse he said, you guys are not done yet. You're not done yet. You will cause more bloodshed until I return and remove the scourge of Judaism from planet Earth. Okay? So, all the prophets, and it's quite possible, even though In many cases, in the Old Testament, it was the Israelites themselves who tried to slay their own prophets. Nevertheless, the Edomites had a hand in a lot of that killing, such as Doeg, the Edomite, who Saul hired to slay certain Israelite priests, certain Levites. So 
we are not guiltless either. Our leaders are not guiltless either. And throughout history, the Jews have compromised our leaders, our kings, queens, and presidents, and caused bloodshed through them by intimidating them, by assassinating them if they don't cooperate, by hiring people to give them bad advice, right? Such as Dov Zakheim and Lucky Larry Silverstein and the destruction of the Twin Towers. Uh, That is Jewish perfidy, if there ever was any Jewish perfidy. So, he says, verse 36, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation, this group of this bloodline, this bloodline of Kenites. Now, regarding the city of Jerusalem and figurative Jerusalem, which is us, we are that Jerusalem and so is the literal city of Jerusalem. But let's just take it from a literal standpoint here and see what this is saying. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. All right, so the city of Jerusalem, populated by both Judahites and Edomites in the days after John Hyrcanus, persecuted the Judahite prophets. And the Essenes left the city of Jerusalem, who were they were true Judahites, left the city of Jerusalem because of this persecution. Verse 38. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. The city of Jerusalem is to be left desolate. And it has been desolate with the Jews in charge, and actually since the destruction of the temple. Nothing much has happened there. The the Arabs, the Muslims, took it over in the 600s. So the Jews have not been able to gain, the only foothold they have gained there is thanks to the House of Israel, the British Mandate, which again was a big mistake on our part. And then finally, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of Yahweh. Obviously referring to himself. I come in my Father's name. So, unless, I was just sticking to the literal interpretation here, which The Jews claim to be the literal people of Israel, and Jerusalem is the literal city to which which belongs to them. I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of Yahweh. All right. Will the Jews ever admit that Yahshua is that Messiah? And that they would have to invoke his name to enter the kingdom. Do you think that will ever happen? That the Jews will acknowledge Jesus as Messiah? 
You think that will ever happen? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Okay, so let's get back to this this article here. And uh, see if we can reference some of these items. And my phone is ringing off the hook this morning. And uh, we'll be done in about 10 minutes. And uh, so some of these verses, uh, beginning with Luke 17, 20 through 21. So let me go into my e-sword here. Luke 20. And I think he said Luke 20, verse 21. Paying taxes to Caesar? Uh, let me uh, let me reference this article again, see if I got it right. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Luke, the phone ringing distracted me. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. So let me go there. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, certainly not by them, because they're looking in the wrong direction. Neither shall they say, Lo, here, or lo, there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he continues, For lo, the days come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. Okay? Now this is spoken to the Pharisees. And you have to understand, whenever the Pharisees confronted Yahshua Messiah, there was always a crowd around them waiting to see what his answer would be, right? So that crowd was a mixed multitude. There were Judahites, Edomites, there were Benjamites, there were travelers from afar. So he's telling these people, it doesn't come with observation. It comes with knowledge, is what I would say. It comes with knowledge. So what's the next passage here? John 3, we'll just go verses 3 through 7. John chapter 3, which states, Jesus answered, let's see, who's he talking to? The Jews, right? Oh, this was, oh, okay, so this is the, uh, oh, this is the episode with Nicodemus. Let me start from verse 1. John 3, 1. There was a man of the Pharisees. Now, I believe Nicodemus was actually an Israelite, but still a member of the Pharisees, as was Paul. But Paul get, uh, turned against the Pharisees. No, no information as to whether Nicodemus did. Named Nicodemus a ruler of the Judeans. So he may have been actually a member of the Sanhedrin. But I believe also Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin as well. So there were token representatives of our race among the Sanhedrin. But since the days of Herod, who slew the entire Sanhedrin, killed all of the original Sanhedrin, and replaced them with his cronies, 
a lot of Edomite Pharisees entered the Sanhedrin. Verse 2, the same came to Jesus by night, that is, Nicodemus, and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. But he should speak for himself, because the rest of the Sanhedrin didn't agree with him, all right? For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born, the word here is again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But that word is anathen. It's a false translation. It should say, from above. Except a man be born from above, and this is the only occurrence There may be one or two other occurrences of the word anathen where it's translated as again, but it makes no sense in this passage because Yahshua says, hey, you don't understand. Okay? So the correct translation is, except a man or an Adamite be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of Yahweh. Verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can an Adamite be born when he is old? Can he re-enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? So obviously Nicodemus misunderstands what Yahshua is saying to him. Nicodemus is the one who thinks that he would literally have to be born again. To which Yahshua replies, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except an Adamite be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Water being the womb, spirit being you have to be a spiritual Israelite in the proper sense of spiritual Israelite. You have to be one of those Israelites who is destined to be born on this planet to bring into reality his kingdom. Those who are predestinated to do so, which is all Israelites. That we may bring forth the kingdom. It has to come into being first in us. If it doesn't come into being first in us, well, that's why they're trying to destroy our DNA. So that we can't bring it into into the reality on this planet. Remember, the kingdom will, the new Jerusalem will come down right here on earth. And the universe will be ruled right from right here by us or through us by taking instructions from Yahshua Messiah who will rule with a rod of iron. Okay? So verse 5 clarifies what Nicodemus misunderstood to be, mean born again. And of course, the Judeo churches mean by this like a spiritual, oh, uh, I'm born again so that now I understand everything. <laughs> right? That's a, please. Please. And then verse 6 that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Okay? But us, we, Israel, are supposed to merge the two in our own bodies 
in our own beings. Okay? So, verse 7. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born from above. That's the second mistranslation of again. Look up your concordance. I will read the definition from the concordance. Anothen. From G507, meaning from above. By analogy, from the first. By implication, anew. So they take that word anew and translate it as again. But the first meaning is from above, from the first. And this implies predestination because we Israelites were conceived in the spirit in heaven before the world was made. Capish, comprende, understand. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. Thanks for listening. We are the kingdom. And it's our responsibility to make sure that all prophecy be fulfilled in us and the second coming. Amen and amen. Take care, everybody. See you at Voice of Christian Israel. Bye-bye. <laughs>